I've got so much to tell you about this episode, which I'm calling How to Avoid the Cybersecurity Armageddon. We cover a lot of ground, from tips on mitigating your firm's risk of being hacked, all the way to improving your preparedness for an SEC audit. All that and more is coming up next on the Wealth Management Today podcast. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Hiring the right technology consultants can have a huge impact on your business, while the wrong ones can crater it. If your company sells software or services to the wealth management industry, Ezra Group can help you improve your products, better understand your target markets, and gain insight into your competitors. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. Hello, world of wealth tech. Thanks for joining me here on the Wealth Management Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, and on this, our second episode, I'm bringing you all the latest information about cybersecurity from one of the industry's most experienced authorities, Brian Edelman from FCI. Brian has such a deep understanding of internet security, we could have talked for hours. I learned a lot from our conversation, and we edited all of it down to just the highlights for this podcast just for all of you. I hope you enjoy it. So here we go. Brian Edelman is a nationally recognized cybersecurity expert specializing in the financial services industry. He is the CEO of FCI, a managed security service provider, which he founded in 1995. FCI offers a comprehensive suite of cybersecurity solutions that are customized for financial services firms. Hey, Brian, how are you? Doing fabulous. How are you? Terrific. I'm glad you can make it here with me on the podcast. I appreciate you doing the podcast. Uh, Brian, so as CEO of, of this cybersecurity firm, uh, I know we were talking about uh, before we started about how you build a culture of cyber experts. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, again, you know, my role as being a cyber expert and CEO are, are very different. On the CEO side, uh, it really is uh, very, uh, you know, as a former financial advisor, we run our practice very much like an advisory practice. And it's about our, our internal culture uh, as well as, you know, just some of the key uh, ways of attracting and recruiting uh, really talented uh, people to serve our clients. Well, I wanted to ask you about the um, oh, what, what I'm seeing. What, what I think is that there's there's an Armageddon coming. Yes, cybersecurity mainly because firms aren't aren't they're somewhat aware, but they don't see the importance of cybersecurity in in their business. Would you uh, agree with that? Uh, well, I agree with that a hundred percent for those firms that are not prepared, for those firms that haven't taken any time to follow what the regulators are asking of them, for those people that that have not developed the culture of cybersecurity, those firms that have not done those things will face an Armageddon. What would you say the, the percentages of firms that have not prepared? That number uh, in the last couple of years has, has significantly changed. Uh, certainly New York DFS seemed to be the most uh, influential in, in getting firms into action. And that's simply because 
uh, in a NIST-based model, which is an evidence-based model, uh, you're no longer attesting to and, and being um, held to a standard of attestation, which simply means if you tell me that you're cyber secure, you are. In, in the NIST model, it, it requires evidence of it. Yeah, so when you say evidence, what do you mean by that? So evidence, so within a series of the regulators, uh, the SEC, FINRA, New York DFS, they've outlined exactly what you as a firm are supposed to be doing. Uh, and within that, they've defined the within evidence requirements. So, for example, if you say you have an information security policy and it's written, they'll simply ask for the uh, information security policy to be printed out. And that's evidence that says either you can print it or not print it, as opposed to the prior standard of attestation, which says, do you have an information security policy? The advisor may say, sure, I do. And then they go on to the next question. They don't do that anymore. Okay, so evidence could mean just printing out your policy, it's, it, it's, or is it more than that? No, it's, it's exactly those types of things. How do you evidence things like I have a commercial firewall? So you can take a picture of it, you can uh, go log into it and demonstrate that it's properly licensed and has the right security tools. Those are the types of evidence that would suggest that almost everything that you state, anything you attest to, has the ability to have evidence behind it. Gotcha. Uh, you mentioned uh, New York DFS. Can you explain what that is? New York uh, Department of Financial Services uh, took a position of, of following the NIST standard and setting dates and timelines and, and requirements for all financial advisors that do business in the state of New York. Understood. Yeah, there may be some people, I know any advisors in Manhattan would know that or in, in the state of New York would know that, but I just wanted to uh, get that out there for anyone outside of the city. Do you see this um, that New York is driving regulations in this area or, or the firms are other regular uh, are other municipalities copying New York or is, are they a one-off? Uh, I, I would suggest that uh, many of uh, the regulatory bodies uh, are implementing their own variation uh, of these standards. So we're seeing things like OSI, which is the office of compliance inspection and examinations Actually, they were the first to come out with a standard and, and give instructions on what they would look for during an exam. And when we when they provided those instructions, we did notice a significant increase in advisors wanting to become cyber secure, typically before an exam. So they, it set the, the bar before an exam, advisors are getting secure and going through the requirements that are defined by that prescriptive document that OC had provided. Secondly, New York DFS says, well, now you have to meet our standards and you have to certify every year. So they changed the language from attesting to certifying. And that certainly has changed the bar considerably. And now something called the NAIC, uh, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, uh, who regulate insurance licenses and, and some other licenses as well uh, for financial advisors, has also jumped in the mix and added what, what's important to them. And now we're starting to see the different states like California that also turn around and add. And, and when we go back to the original state, which was Massachusetts, uh, they were really one of the first uh, and, and most progressive to put together some privacy regulations. 
I see. Brian, how did uh, this, this thought come here? I've seen you at a lot of conferences and, and we've known each other for a while. And one thing I want to ask you is how did you get into cybersecurity? Well, the, the reason I got into cybersecurity, I was fortunate enough uh, to be uh, raised in a house of a financial advisor. And that financial advisor was my mother. And in essence, my mother had started to work with some very, very successful people. She was focused on the, the business market of financial planning. She was helping these businesses with everything from deferred compensation to uh, secession planning to uh, estate planning. Uh, I was raised uh, to understand all of those aspects of financial services. And in that, with those very high profile clients, they held us even back then to standards of their private information because these were very public figures. These were billionaires that if the, the uh, media or if it had gotten out uh, aspects of their life, they would uh, have recourse against us. So it really, the, the passion to protect private information was really defined by the importance of those clients that we had that demanded that we keep their private information safe. Raised at the, the knee of a financial advisor. Right. She bounced you on her knee as she was doing financial plans. And then, you know, with that, uh, you know, the appreciation for the industry and what it did for my family and the idea of being able to provide a service to protect financial advisors who we all know want to focus on taking care of their clients and having cybersecurity be something that is important to them but not something that distracts them from what they need to do every day, which is take care of those clients. Right. So are there ways that firms, uh, wealth management firms can prepare? I mean, one of the biggest issues is besides actually getting hacked is getting audited. So how can firms better prepare for the SEC coming in and whether I heard they're giving cybersecurity special attention now? Well, a couple of key things is number one, you have to find a provider that's familiar with financial services because there are a lot of advisors that go out to the market and they're working with firms that aren't focused in financial services. Second thing uh, that you can do, uh, and, and there are three elements to uh, really making sure that you know you have a program in place, one of which uh, is to make sure that you indeed have an information security policy. So we talked about that before, make sure it's in writing um, and make sure that within that it has and is defined typically in the two parts. One part is the policies and procedures. So that discusses when you add a new employee or a new financial advisor, what are the steps that you use to put them into your systems and what are the steps when they leave that you take them out? Those are policies and procedures. And the other aspect is technical controls, which is of the machines uh, and, and equipment that people are using, are those indeed safe? Do we have the right equipment to keep our private information uh, save uh, based off of not only uh, the best practices, but what the regulators are requiring. Are there, are there specific uh, connections between the policies and procedures and the technology that you recommend? Without question. Uh, the, the reason, you know, so the traditional approach to this is to do a risk assessment, which is a lot like a financial plan, but instead for uh, cybersecurity. So you're, you're just gathering all your documents uh, it, you're, you're then asking questions, observing whether you're seeing or not seeing those things, and then doing some technical scans. Uh, you know, certainly the technical scanning component 
uh, is very, very uh, enlightening in that, you know, one of the, the biggest risks to the entire industry is, uh, you know, when we talk about the different levels of cybersecurity and the fact that even advisors themselves for years have been attested to by their own IT resources that they're safe and secure. And that's not necessarily the case. So best thing to do if you want to know whether or not you're cyber secure is to engage a firm in a risk assessment. And what, uh, so when, when uh, a wealth management firm engages, outsources this and engages in a risk assessment, uh, I, I have some notes from uh, when you spoke at an earlier conference. Uh, does performing a risk assessment put your firm at risk? Well, it can if it's not done right. That's a, a great question. Uh, the, there's different parts to the risk assessment. One part is, again, that policies and procedures, and that's done through a series of questions and evidencing documents that you say that you have. The other part, which is the, the security assessment component, which is where you're doing technical scans. And, and the traditional approach, which it really should never be taken, is to turn the firewalls off of, of all the devices so that you can scan them. So we see it, you know, where the technical scanning firm to save time and energy on their side, because they haven't automated, they put all the machines at risk in order to scan them. And that should never happen. Last um, September, the SEC fined Voya Financial a million dollars over a cyber breach what should they have done to avoid that? Well, you know, in our opinion, we, we've taken a, a position that says, you know, Voya uh, was taking action to try to get cyber secure. So it wasn't that they, they did absolutely nothing. And in those actions, they followed the traditional process of a risk assessment, building your program, uh, and then delivering your program, you know, third. And the problem that happened with Voya was, in the delivery of their program, they never got to delivering the program because they either run out of resources or time. Those are the two elements. And if they had reversed it, if they had delivered the technical controls first, uh, they would have been able to, number one, demonstrate that they, all of the machines that, that their advisors are working off of are cyber secure based on the, the requirements of those regulations. And not just regulations, but what keeps the machine safe. Then they could run a security assessment on those machines. And that would uncover things around the policies and procedures that either were or were not being followed. And it uncovers it, you know, without an attestation from the IT team. So it's very important that it's an independent third party team providing those services because of course, if it's the internal team doing it, there are a lot of things that the executives need to know that they may not know. So they should have got an, uh, an objective third party and they sort of did it backwards. They did it. At, they did it traditional. So backwards was the traditional approach. Uh, the only reason that we're seeing a significant change in the, what we call the upside down approach, which is the technical scans first is, is simply because, there's a finite number of, of technical controls that are required to be on a computer. They should have good endpoint protection. They should be encrypted. They should have passwords. I mean, these are things that no matter what regulation that you're trying to, uh, to adhere to, 
Those are called data loss prevention tools. And when you have them in place, it just simply means that in the face of an incident, if you can demonstrate that at least you had the right technical controls in place, then the regulators and the authorities and the insurance companies, everybody's willing to work with you. But when you don't have the technical controls in place, what we've observed is that we call it the double and triple victimization uh, where because you didn't have the technical controls in place, now you're required to do things like send out notifications to all clients that were affected. Well, think about the reputational damage of doing that, let alone the costs. And then you're also required to hire forensics. And when you're required uh, by the courts to do anything, the ability to negotiate price is now gone. So imagine, you know, being from an insurance and, and a life insurance background, you think about this and you say, the risk assessment and the security is all the tools we're talking about are, are, should be viewed as the premium. And if you don't put those tools in place, you can be held to the death benefit. Yeah, you're, um, when, the, when you're, you're, that's a great quote, when you're, um, a court orders you to do something, you don't have any room to negotiate price. You're, because everyone knows you have to do it. Right. And that's the difference between having a good cyber program in place and not. So if you have a good cyber program in place during an incident, uh, the likelihood is you can even, you know, you, you're in control uh, of how to proceed and make sure that the right thing is done. When you don't have the right controls in place, you're not in control. And, and again, you know, thinking back to uh, a correlation for financial advisors, it's like dying with or without a will. Hmm. Can you explain a little bit more about data loss prevention tools? Data loss prevention tools uh, are one of the aspects uh, that we're referring to as technical controls. And those loss prevention tools are things like everybody should really have a good antivirus program to protect them from viruses, right? Everybody should have an encrypted computer. With Windows 10 Pro, there's no reason that you don't have an encrypted computer. These are things that don't have to cost money. You turn them on and you simply evidence them. Every machine should have some good settings, like they should be patched. So if we think back to what happened at Equifax, which is one of the, um, uh, the biggest breaches in the history of the world when it comes to non-private data. Um, and you think about what they missed was a patch. So you know things like patching the computer, antivirus, encryption, uh, screensavers that lock, um, along with, uh, you know, complex passwords on the computer. Uh, you know, those are the types of things that you'll hear about when it comes to technical controls. That's one of my pet peeves is passwords. I've always been, I mean, coming from a technology background, uh, I guess I know a little bit more than, than some people, but what it always bothers me when I saw these password requirements where it's eight characters with a letter and a punctuation, but isn't that not secure anymore based on the level of, te of how technology has advanced and the speed of encryption, of decryption tools and hacking tools and, and uh, rainbow tables and other such things now are available to hackers? Yeah, I, I think that there are sometimes there are unintended consequences uh, of a, uh, an approach at the time. Uh, certainly, cybersecurity has advanced 
so that it's not an intrusive process. It's actually something you look forward to. Uh, changing your passwords in 90 days doesn't necessarily create a more secure computer. Adding things like multi-factor authentication, so not only do you need to know your password, but you need a device or to, to be able to let you in to the systems has, has really risen as, as a great approach and, and puts a lot less emphasis on the password. So the idea of changing passwords when you have multi-factor authentication is not as necessary. But what becomes more important, and I, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, when you talk about the length of a password and the uppercase and lowercase, what we've been doing as it relates to passwords is helping our clients use the same password, that's fine, for multiple systems with the exception of something we call a pre-password. Now the pre-password, imagine that I'm logging into my account. So I'm logging into whatever financial institution or uh, even if I'm logging into Staples uh, as an example, I may start my password with Staples as being the beginning of the password. So I put a capital S and then I just put the rest, whatever, whatever abbreviation I want to use depending on you know, how much data may or may not be there. So for Staples, I might just type Staples with a capital S, I put a dash, and then I put the password that I've been using, which I can remember, because part of the problem is when you can't remember the password, that's what puts people that use changing passwords at risk. They start to write it down uh, in their, uh, on a piece of paper next to their computer. They start to put it into their Outlook account, they create a spreadsheet. I mean, we know that they're doing these things and it, it, the unintended consequences of password and password management has been uh, the exposure of these, the passwords to uh, either those, again, spreadsheets that we see being created. So to answer the question around passwords is, you know, it's more important to use a password manager uh, an enterprise password manager for an office. Uh, very important to store those passwords. You're storing passwords in a safe location. It also tracks the logs when those passwords are used. Very important as part of that process. And then, like I said, with multi-factor authentication, the password becomes a great way, especially with that pre-password. If a password does get compromised, you'll at least know as a consumer which system it was. Shouldn't passwords be obsolete by now? I mean, was, I think five or six years ago, I saw a tool on the phone where you could scan a QR code with your smartphone and it logged in automatically. And I know I saw that at a conference just last year as well on the fun banking side. And with fingerprint identifiers on your, on your uh, laptops, I mean, what are we still using passwords for? Well, right. So we're starting to see the, the use of the multi-factor authentication and, and what we're talking about, the next generation version of it. So when you use uh, an iPhone or an Android and they can look at your face and recognize that it's you, that's the form of uh, the next generation multi-factor authentication. I do think that passwords still have a place and that is simply to identify uh, any system that's been compromised. Uh, you wanna be able to have a, a, a another form of authentication and a password, what you know in your head is, it just becomes less important that it's um, whether or not the passwords themselves are compromised. It becomes an indicator of the system being compromised. One thing I hear, I've heard at, I mean, we work with a lot of broker dealers and, and, um, and banks and 
one thing I hear from advisors and, and people representing the advisor side of the business is that cybersecurity is inconveniencing them, that it's, it's, it's making it harder for them to do their job. Well, which you could respond, well, would you want to be hacked? And which, which is more important, having a, which, is, which, is, which would you rather have, a, a couple more steps and a few more things to go through versus uh, having all your data hacked? So, but how do we find the, the, the common ground between uh, enabling advisors to do their job and be efficient and effective, uh, and, but still do it in a secure manner? Well, that's, that's exactly what we've been focused on for the last 28 years. Uh, making sure that advisors can be cyber safe but not be the cyber experts. Making sure that we're selecting tools that create that next generation feel where you start to feel safe as opposed to feeling inconvenienced. So anybody that's out there that is feeling like they're spending too much money on cyber, uh, it, it could be that they really have to take a look at that, but cyber should not be overly expensive. Uh, and in addition, uh, you know, the way it's delivered needs to be seamless so that the end user isn't being inconvenienced by uh, cyber. And the tools that are being used uh, are tools that we described that leverage, for example, your phone or device uh, in order to get in. So today, if somebody were to say that cyber was expensive and inconvenient, the likelihood is they're using older tools. You mentioned earlier reputational risk if uh, your firm is hacked and you have to send out communication to all your clients, which would, was never good for any firm's reputation. What about managing third-party risk, all your other vendors, and, all, and, and we we're getting more and more outsourced services, more and more online services. How do you manage all the risk of, of, uh, of, of all the third-party services that a, a typical firm is using these days? Well, you know, some of the most important things are to use best of breed. Uh, so make sure that, that you're not taking any risks uh, of your own uh, find out what your peers are using and always leverage the best of breed software that's out there that's at the various conferences that we're at. Those, those companies have invested time and energy in protecting and they're also passionate about protecting this space. Secondly, you know, the vendors have to go through the same process that a firm has to go through. So once they go through a risk assessment, you have a much more, there's a lot more clarity around the types of questions you might want to ask a vendor. Uh, you know, that you learned in your own risk assessment. So, you know, do you have people accessing our data? Where are they accessing it from? Are they from within the United States, not the United States? Where's my data housed? What what does our agreement look like if you have a breach? How do I know that you've had a breach? You know, these are all questions. And the more questions that the advisors and the community can ask. I also like the initiative of Cleverdome. This is one of the areas that I think uh, are very inefficient that we need a centralized service like Cleverdome to go out and reach out to all the vendors and collect this data, ask the right questions, because if the advisors don't know the questions they ask, somebody has to, why not have a, an organization that's doing that for us? And then we subscribe to that organization and ask them to, to, to vet out our other vendors that might have access to our non-public information. I've written about Clever Dome on my blog, but many people may not know what it is. Could you give a quick 30-second overview of what Clever Dome is? What, it, what does it mean, and what does it mean to be, uh, join it and be under the dome? Well, Clever Dome in its, in its mission is really uh, what attracted me to it, which was to protect the financial services industry and to collaborate on how we do that as a community. 
Clever Dome is a B Corp, so it, it means that it's required to have a, a community impact, which says that their community mission is to protect the financial services industry. Now, they're doing that through three separate initiatives. One initiative says, can somebody just give me an information security policy that I can adopt and adjust a little bit, but let's make that part a lot easier so that not every firm is out there doing their own information security policy. That works well for both the firms because now when you join Cleverdome, you get that policy. So now instead of having to invest in legal, you can actually take this and, you know, like everything else with a lawyer, the more prepared you are up front, the less your legal costs will be. So we're not suggesting you just blindly adopt it, but it was certainly suggesting that, that Cleverdome is defining a standard of technical controls on the machine and good policies and procedures for financial advisors. So that's one. The second component says in this third party discussion, you know, if all advisors reached out to these small firms and imagine how many of the, the small entrepreneurial firms that cater to the financial services advisor to create that efficiency, to create, you know, a, a value proposition for that advisor to the client. And imagine those smaller firms having to then hire so many resources to respond to these requests. You know, they'd have to make a decision. Do I respond to these cyber requests or do I uh, improve the product? And, and when you see that happening where the money that, that's being invested is in cyber, I think that's going to have a longer term impact on innovation. So with Cleverdome doing that once and then distributing it to the advisors who are members, that's a great service. So you turn to them and say, I'm using this vendor. They say, great. We have their, uh, their security information already. Here's their security package. You take that, you put that in your cybersecurity folder, and now we've saved time and energy across the whole industry uh, all over the place, from the third-party vendor to the advisor in their office not having to do all that work uh, by themselves, uh, especially without the experience of doing risk assessments on third parties. And the last part of Cleverdome says that, you know, with these integrations that we see happening, there's the unintended consequences of cyber. Again, it shows its head. And now all of a sudden we say, okay, well, you know, we have to protect that data, uh, when, especially when we have a connector between two vendors. You know, what, we have to make sure that the data through the life cycle of that data is protected all the way through. So you can have one cyber secure vendor and now all of a sudden you've got another vendor that doesn't have the resources and they're less cyber secure and now the data is exposed and everybody's in trouble. So what Cleverdome says, the third piece of what Cleverdome is, is really defined is something called a software defined perimeter. It means that if we could take the information that is being shared among vendors and advisors and take it off the open internet, that the likelihood of having that data compromised would be significantly reduced. Seems like it's a big time savings for everyone, especially on the legal and, and assessment side. I mean, the value is, in my opinion, uh, you know, since I've seen it, I, I, as soon as I heard about what they were trying to do, and that's why I've spent a lot of time helping them, giving them, you know, whatever uh, insight in my 28 years of experience that I can give them. And the reason for it is because if it saves the industry uh, money uh, and time and, and reputation and all of the good things that it can do, I, I really don't see where there's a downside to what uh, Cleverdome, I don't see any downside to what Cleverdome is doing. 
What about social engineering? How can firms do a better job uh, in education of their staff to avoid social engineering, phishing attacks, and other such uh, ways to, to break into firms' data? I think that, you know, when we look at the regulations, even the OC regulations, and one of the, the very clear guidelines is around education, and we say, okay, you know, people have had their head in the sand for so long, and we take our head out of the sand and start to talk about this stuff, it doesn't become as scary anymore. And the example that I sometimes will give is, you know, has anybody received their check from the Nigerian prince because I'm waiting for mine and everybody laughs? But the way cyber works is they'll laugh at that now because ultimately they've shared it with, and they've educated themselves that the guy's never going to send money. So, you, you know, the idea is you're supposed to receive the money, not send them money Yet people, you know, uh, were sending in money. Now, these scams work for a little while. Uh, all of them do um, until everybody starts to educate or talk about what, what they've seen. So things like, hey, I just sent you a bunch of documents. You know, are we going to fall for that? Hopefully not. You know, if you weren't expecting those documents, you shouldn't be opening them. And these are great conversations to have with your staff uh, and even your clients for that matter, because it develops that culture. You know, when we talk about the CEO role before, and, and I'm a cybersecurity expert and CEO role, I, I, I navigate to the culture of cybersecurity as being a leadership role. It's, it's what every advisor should be doing and leading their own organization in. And, and not that they have to be cyber experts, just they have to lead the conversation. So as a CEO, if you were to add to the agenda of a staff meeting, discussions on cyber, what is, has anyone seen or heard or, or gotten from home? You know, those are things you wanna share because the more that we're alert and aware of these things, the less likely they are to have a, a, a breach. Now, you know, we talked earlier, you know, when did we see the financial advisor get motivated? And we said with OC, it was when they were going to have an examination or with New York DFS, it's when they had a certified of the state. There's another element that we, we need to make sure we understand. And that is if one client were to complain about your firm, the authorities are notified. And when the authorities come in, no different than the regulators when they come in, and no different than an examiner when they come in, they're going to come in and ask questions. They're going to start to say, you know, they're going to look for evidence that you have a couple things. One is that you have a cybersecurity program. Two, that you have a culture of cybersecurity. So people, you don't just have a program. And this was the problem in the Boya case is they had a program. They just didn't, didn't have it rolled out yet. So you want to have that culture of cybersecurity and do you have the right tools? So, it just, when a regulator comes in or when the authorities come in because a client complained, they're going to be looking for evidence of these things. And if you have it, you control the incident. And when you don't, <clears throat> you become that double victim. You now have a client that complains. And, and look, their data could have been breached in the Equifax. They could have been breached in a, in a thousand other breaches that happen out there. But they're pointing at you. And if they're pointing at you and then regulators come in and they don't find what they're looking for, then you're, you can expect to be fined and you can expect to be required to, to notify all of your clients that you've had an incident and you can expect that you're going to have to hire forensics and you can expect all of the bad things. And, and here's even the worst part. Even if you bought a cyber insurance policy, <coughs> when the cyber insurance company takes your application and money, 
they don't look for evidence at that point. You know when they look for evidence? When? When you have a claim. Hmm. And if we've all experienced this from commercial insurers, and, and it's it's you know, it's in their policies. So they have policies and procedures that in order for you to affect coverage, you also have to follow. So imagine you have an incident and you don't notify the insurance company, they can deny the claim. And they have every right to. And imagine that that now you did and you notified them, but now they come back and they said, well, on your application for insurance, you said that you have, uh, you know, the appropriate technical controls in place. You have, you have good data loss prevention tools. Can you evidence that? Can you show us that? Or you said you had a cyber program in place. You know, we want to see it. So they start to ask these questions because the representations were made in the application for insurance. They have the right to ask these questions. And if you can't evidence it, you now become that double victim. So it makes no sense to sign up for insurance if you're not prepared in every other way. It makes no sense to sign up for insurance, fill out an application that you can't evidence in that application. So if that application says that you have a commercial firewall, take a picture of the commercial firewall and put it in your insurance application for the, the protection of the firm. So whatever the answers to the question, don't allow a, an insurance professional to fill out that application on your behalf just to get you the coverage because all that does is it gets you to pay a premium but you may not have coverage. So just- Because when you- yeah. actually have a loss, they're going to come in and check and find you were never really covered. They have the right to request evidence. This is cybersecurity when it went to the NIST-based model is an evidence-based model. So in the old model, the attestation model, that was fine. You, you, you know, everybody was believing everybody and, and that's the way that model worked, right? So if you said your computer was encrypted, you know, they're not, the insurance company didn't ask that on the uh, old standard. In the new standard, because it's an evidence-based standard, they will ask for that evidence at the time of an incident. What's your opinion on bring your own device, BYOD? Is that something firms should be doing? Is it, is it you, can it be secured? Is it inherently unsecure? What do you think about that? Um, it's a great question, and, and this has been something that a lot of the enterprise technology uh, cyber experts have been faced with, uh, you know, especially with an independent sales force. Uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges uh, in two different approaches. One approach says no BYOD. So I'm going to issue you a computer from my financial institution, and you can only use that computer to, to conduct business with us. Well, the problem is that you inherit then a lot of IT type services. Uh, you you uh, inherit a lot of services that your firm may or may not be able to be prepared to use. And here's the worst part. The advisors then don't really use it for anything other than working with you. So they have two computers. So you doubled your attack surface when you issue a non-BYOD. So imagine I now have my own device and my corporate device, and I'm operating off both of those. So that's not the best approach that we've seen. The best approach that we've seen is to allow an advisor to use one device, whether it's corporate issued or not, make sure it allows them to operate successfully and secure it properly with the tools that are available today. So do I think that adding a, a 
you know, enterprise device uh, and not allowing BYOD works? No. Uh, I think that you have to secure any device, no matter where it is, if it has access to the private data of the enterprise. Can you explain for those uh, uninitiated in uh, the technology of uh, security, what is an attack surface? Well, that's a great question. Uh, so your attack surface, uh, you know, the various different devices that you use, the more devices, the, the larger your surface is. So if I'm using one cyber secure laptop and that's all I use with one uh, phone, that's probably your smallest attack surface. So if I secure both of those, uh, I'm good. But if I now start to add another iPad uh, or another tablet device, and I add a home computer, and I add a, a, a laptop computer, now I've got three devices where I take a, an Apple computer and I put in a, a Windows virtual machine in it. You know, these are all things that increase the attack surface, meaning the amount of systems you have to maintain. So cybersecurity is focused on, you know, a device level protection and a user level protection. So you've got these different layers. You've got the user and you've got the device. And because you add more devices, the quantity of devices you're protecting increases that attack, uh, you know, uh, the attack surface. The attack surface, exactly. This is an area that I think a lot of firms don't want to think about and don't want to talk about, but what about insider threats? Where you've got someone inside the organization that's looking to uh, attack them, looking to cause damage, uh, not physical damage, but cyber damage, digital damage. Uh, someone may be a disgruntled employee. What, what can they do? What can firms do to avoid those situations? Um, you know, this is where those policies and procedures become so, so critical. And it really is about not only the technical controls, but policies and procedures. When somebody comes on board, are you giving them access to everything? Or are you giving them access to only those things they need to do their job? And what monitors do you have in place in order to make sure that somebody didn't hit the button and download all of the client private data right to their computer and then send it off on a you know, an email system that maybe they got to, you know, as, a, as their private email. So these are all important things. And I, I think you're right. I think that, you know, a lot of attacks uh, are just, you know, disgruntled employees. And we need to just make sure. And again, this, this comes back to the policies and procedures. Because as a firm, if you haven't provided to your employee what it means to be cyber secure in, in a document, then you know, ultimately you could be at risk for them doing those types of insider thing, you know, uh, insider actions uh, that put the firm's data at risk and yet the firm would be held accountable, not the individual. So imagine that. You have an employee who takes an action against your firm to end your firm and when it comes down to it, as a firm, you're the one that's going to get in trouble and find, not that person who stole the data. Yeah, I don't think many companies realize that. I, I would venture to say that almost every one of them don't really. I mean, we, we, we work in an industry of a high amount of trust on the people we hire. Um, so, you know, the, the idea that, you know, and this is when we talk about a, a culture of cybersecurity and what they're talking about 
is the importance of these discussions because take that same scenario, right? And now we've, as the CEO and leadership of the organization, we're committed to having a culture of cybersecurity and we talk about the things you can and can't do. Now, all of a sudden, I'm covered for that, right? So we have a staff meeting and, and do we say to, to in the staff meeting, does everybody understand it's our, one of our jobs is to protect our clients' private data and that means this, 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 and this, and this. Well, now we've had the discussion. Now we've had it in, in a public forum. Now it's part of our, our culture. If that same scenario where you had somebody internal who stole the data and, and made it available on the dark web or wherever they did, and it came back to you, you'd at least be able to say, no, we have a firm that is and has a culture of cybersecurity and every single member of our team knows that it's wrong to steal the private client data of our clients. Yeah, some of those things you think would be obvious to people, but they're probably not. And that's exactly what I mean about cybersecurity does not have to be expensive. What does it cost to add the discussion of cybersecurity onto your, your staff agenda? Shouldn't cost it much. Cost? It's, it's free. You've got to open up the dialogue. You know, that's the most important thing is this is a scary topic and, and most people put their head in the sand, but as soon as they start to talk about it and have discussions and bring in what they've seen at home and, you know, there's a recent thing going around where they send you an email and it says, I, I watched what you did last night and I've got video of it and I'm going to post it on your social media if you don't send me Bitcoin. You know, the first time that comes out, the person's really scared. And then as we see it more and more, and we're at the center of a lot of these attacks. So when people see these things, fortunately, you know, as, uh, you know, cyber, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the different layers of cyber, but we are a, a cybersecurity security operation team. So it means that uh, we're any incident, and this is where you know whether you have a really strong cyber team, is at the time of an incident. But the question is, is the incident being handled in a way that protects the firm? So, you know, you now have this, this, you know, what that means is whenever there's an incident in the industry, we get to see it because we are on so many different firms, cyber team. I saw uh, some stats that most internal frauds are, are still committed by junior staff and middle management, but there is some senior management involved. You know, I absolutely see it at the senior manager level, and sometimes it's not even intentional. You know, in the old days, you know, there was, it was if you think all the way back to AOL, uh, and you think of all the incidents that took place because of AOL, AOL was kind of this, this you know, uh, as we all know, you know, where we were getting our own personal email. And imagine the CEOs of these companies were all using AOL at the time. And the, the cyber experts on their teams, and, and, you know, the enterprises have such good cyber teams. These are guys that think about it all day long. And all of a sudden, they're being commanded by the executive leadership to open up the ports to allow AOL uh, to be usable. And when they do that, they put so many enterprises at risk. And that's just a, an example of an executive making a request for something they want that puts everybody at risk. So we see that happen, unfortunately, more than we'd like to. That goes back to the convenience versus security debate. Right. And, and that's why, you know, it, with the new tools out there, like you were talking about, you know, being able to look at your phone and how convenient it is, you know, when you download the banking app that you use, and now it says, do you want to get in the next time using your face? And you say, yeah. And the bank has made it so convenient. You just 
click on the link and you get right in and, and it knows it's you. That's an example of the next generation type of cyber services. But what you need to also know is that there's a lot more to that than just letting you in uh, at the time that you, you try to get into the app. Uh, it's also, know, it knows your geolocation. So it's adding that to the ability to protect your, your to protect you. So if you're sharing your geolocation with the bank and all of a sudden they get a charge from some other location, they know that that's not you. That helps with the ability for that bank to add artificial intelligence to solve uh, a really big problem, which is, you know, the first part of this cyber thing was to try to extract money. And uh, that side of cybersecurity is not where this Armageddon, uh, you know, that we're talking about takes place. Armageddon in cybersecurity is simply a unprepared financial institution and or advisor uh, that has an incident that they're not prepared for. So that leads into my next topic, which is protecting privacy. So having geolocation on our phones, so every every app we're talking to knows where we are at any point in time, and uh, you know wherever we're logging in from, websites are asking for location uh, information. How how does protecting users' privacy, both advisors and clients, link into cybersecurity uh, cybersecurity assessments and cybersecurity policies? Well, you know. <laughs> Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's become a question of the good side or the bad side, you know, uh, and, and what they're going to do with that private data. Do I care that my bank knows where I am because they're going to protect my money? I'm okay with that. Do I care that, you know, uh, a social media app knows where I am? Well, in that case, I don't want the social, you know, a social app knowing where I am. So, you know, within even the devices, you have the ability to simply, if you Google it, to control who has access to where you are and who doesn't and when. So it really is important when it comes to the, the uh, data privacy and the privacy we want to customize our privacy to what is okay and acceptable for us. And in some cases we can say, okay, I don't want them to know anything. Well, if that's the case, then you're gonna have to you know, know that your protections are less and be okay with that. And in other cases where it just, you know, when I use uh, uh, my um, uh, GPS, I, I don't let it know where I am at all times. Only when I open the application, it's the only time I want them to know where I am. You know, so it does two things. One is when you are able to go in and set the settings for privacy on your devices, uh, you also get better battery life by doing it. So it makes a lot of sense to really master that part of it as well. Hmm. So people should pay more attention to their apps on their phone and what access they're giving to different different pieces of data about them. And the devices. I mean, it's it's kind of scary to me that, that there's this idea of single sign-on. And, you know, the other day I had an experience where <clears throat> I have uh, an AWS account, which is the Amazon commercial, you know, uh, systems where you can... Amazon create, Web Services. Yeah, Amazon Web Services. It allows you to create, um, you know, a, a server and, and put private data on it and do all sorts of great things within Amazon. I also have an Amazon account, same, same login, that gets me to be able to order uh, anything I want 
online and it shows up the next day. Amazon Prime, great example. Now I go out and get the Amazon, they have a, a reader out there and my daughter gets it and I have to log into that reader in order to set the parental control. So again, it's that same account. So now I've got these, there's one account that's accessing all these different systems and it really becomes, you know, a question of just being aware uh, and knowing how to navigate these things so that you don't end up with a, a much bigger breach than, than not being aware. So because if they break yeah. into one, they, they, they want to break into one account to get access to all these different services. Well, and right. And I noticed that as soon as I added, uh, I logged into that device and all of a sudden I, I looked at what I could see and I'm like, well, this is on one hand, a great convenience. On the other hand, as a cyber expert, I looked at it and said, no. And I had to go in and I had to educate myself on where to set the settings, not to allow that to take place. But the default allows that. Yeah, there's so much to worry about. I know in my family, I become the IT person and I'm constantly getting calls from um, family members. What do we do about this? And what should we do about that? And it's, 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 I don't blame them. It's not it's just very complicated uh, for even someone I've got a degree in computer science and some of these things are amazing to me to try to figure out how to get access to some of the screens and how do you turn off your, the different access of, um, you know, knowing where you are, the, the, the geolocation, some apps don't, don't make it easy to find that. Some apps don't make it easy to find where your, your privacy settings are. So it's, it's, uh, it's certainly complicated and getting more so. And what we're seeing, uh, you know, what we're seeing, which is uh, a very different approach. It used to be that all these settings were there and you had to turn them on. We're starting to see the opposite. They turn it on and you have to take an action to turn them off. So we are seeing a great response in, in that. But we also, again, you know, through this education and even the discussion like we're having now, the question I have to people, where do you, where do you have your, your um, you know, the Amazon, the Alexa device? You know, do you have it in a place where you're discussing private things or do you have it, you know, in a place where it's public and everybody knows it's public? Something as simple as that. The, the idea that people are so willing to plug anything into their, their networks. Again, one of those major risks out there that say, do you know what's plugged into your network? And, and if you don't, that would indicate you probably don't have a cyber team. Do you think advisors should not uh, plug an Alexa into their work network? Well, I, I would tell you that um, Alexa is a best of breed application from a, a what I would say is a best of breed provider, right? So you're dealing with Amazon uh, and the resources at Amazon, and you're dealing with you know a company that really is focused on keeping that device secure. So. I'm less concerned about an Alexa, but I will tell you that Alexa, you have to assume is listening to everything you say. So I'd be very careful where I had the Alexa device, as opposed to some of these other devices, which are less known and, and they can get us to plug them into their network because they do something cool. Like, hey, I can plug this into your network and I can turn a light from orange to, to blue. You know, who made it? Uh, are they best of breed? Uh, are there any reviews on what I'm giving them access to? So you see these refrigerators, these, um, you name it, uh, even the ring device, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, the doorbell. Uh, great example of, again, they've become a best of breed provider, but 
in the beginning, who were they? And, and we're just letting them plug in. So very important to, to trust but verify is probably going to be the best way of looking at these things because uh, we don't want to live a paranoid life either. Yeah, it's uh, how do you find the balance? You, you just quoted Reagan, trust but verify. Right. And, and uh, I'm very happy to, to uh, quote uh, Reagan. I think that he had a lot of very uh, insightful uh, messages. Uh, you know, he's a great public speaker, and I, I think that's the right approach. I think that you want to you be able to trust best of breed, but also verify. And again, you know, a lot of it is dealing not, you got to focus also on settings, not just uh, the tools that we're using. So it's, it's a combination. It, it is a culture. Uh, you know, of, of cybersecurity. Now, one thing, you know, that we probably need to discuss, no different than there are different disciplines in financial services. And if I ask somebody in financial services that's in a different discipline, that the answer I get from them, I, I need to know that that's the answer I get from them, right? So we have advisors that there that are uh, planners, a lot of CPAs, they do pure planning, and they know everything about planning. But they'll also... Uh, do get involved in investing and um, uh, insurance. We got other people out there that are great investment advisors and that's their primary, but they'll offer some planning services and maybe some insurance, typically term insurance. And then you've got insurance advisors out there. And, and what I'm getting at is that it's all financial services, but not everybody does the same thing. So in cybersecurity, those roles are defined as the IT cyber, the passive cyber, and the active cyber. Now, FCI is an active cybersecurity company. It's an independent third party that checks on the other two. Um, but those are all three very important disciplines in cybersecurity. So very important for people to understand cyber takes on a lot of different dimensions. And when it comes to technical controls, those are the three different disciplines you have to be aware of. We'll be right back with the podcast and interview with Brian Edelman. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. The Invest in Others Foundation is a nonprofit that recognizes financial advisors for their exceptional charitable work. The nominations window for the 13th annual awards gala is now open. I was fortunate enough to attend the gala last year. And one of my favorite parts was the video interviews they did with each advisor about their charity work. It was an incredibly moving experience to see the tremendous impact that these charities provide back to their communities and how Invest in Others was helping. If you know a financial advisor who is actively giving back to a charity, please nominate them at investinothers.org forward slash nominate by April 5th. Winners will have a chance to receive up to $50,000 Yes, that's $50,000 for the nonprofit they support. This is a great way to highlight the good that exists within the financial services arena. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners to submit the name of an advisor they know to invest in others, since I'm sure their charity could use some of these extra funds to help their cause. And now let's get back to my interview with Brian Edelman on cybersecurity. We were talking about privacy uh, and data security goes along with privacy, of course. So what, what data should be encrypted 
And what's the right level of encryption for that data? Uh, I believe all data uh, should be encrypted at 256. And that's the current standard that is available. It's also the same standard that's, that's made available inside of Windows uh, 2010 uh, it, Pro, if you set it right, uh, it'll be 256. But you know, encryption is one of those words that we just have to be clear. There's, there's encryption at rest and encryption in transit. Uh, and those are concepts that you know, uh, ultimately uh, have a different answer. Uh, certainly, uh, when a device is encrypted, that's encryption at rest. And that's where the BitLocker and the File Vault and those types of systems uh, make sure that those files that are sitting on your hard drives uh, are indeed encrypted. And if the device was stolen in any way, we could lock it down or make sure that uh, no one ever had access to that data. The encryption in transit is a little more challenging. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, it has to do uh, with encryption in transit has more to do with your vendors and observations as to whether your vendors are cyber secure. So those are done through certificates and some other methodology to make sure that when you're bringing data from your uh, financial institution or vendor down to your computer, that that process is indeed secure. And then you could really mess things up if you go to an open Wi-Fi and you start to download and log in and do all sorts of things, you know, by, by opening yourself up. So when you're connecting to an open Wi-Fi, that encryption in transit is, is compromised at that moment. So very important to, to just understand the distinction encryption at rest and encryption at transit. You mentioned 256 for the non-techies non listening. What does that mean? Well, you know, encryption, uh, like the original Enigma machine, is where they're changing uh, the uh, data in a way that has to be decrypted. So on the encryption side, they change the letter A to a 1. And on the decryption side, they have to know that a, a 1 is actually equal to an A. So that's kind of the simplistic approach to the whole decrypting and encrypting process. Now, the further that you go out, uh, when you go out to 256 bit, that means that that same A is not a one, it's 256 characters. It's a lot more characters that are associated to it in order to bring it back to the, the letter A. So it just has to do with the level of computing that would be required to crack into the system or the data. So a higher number of bits of encryption is more secure than a lower number. Harder to, to uh, decrypt, yes. Gotcha. You mentioned the dark web. This is something people hear a lot about and they read a lot about. Uh, what, what is exactly the dark web? Well, you know, the, the original monetization strategy of uh, cybersecurity was to uh, take the data. For example, if I can get a financial advisor and I can get to all of their accounts, I could start to make phone calls to the financial institutions and try to get them to withdraw money and put it into accounts that I have control over, right? So that was the old style. And in that old style, it was very easy for us to see how they were generating uh, money. But what happened is the financial institutions got wind of this and figured out, okay, typically using multi-factor authentication, they've really done 
a lot of things to protect the money uh, on this. So what emerged is this thing called the dark web, and, and it's simply a marketplace. It's a, uh, an eBay, if you will, uh, for uh, cyber criminals, and they can take data and sell it on the dark web to somebody who knows what to do with that data. So it is. It's, so it's not a place that anybody can go. They don't have to worry about stumbling upon the dark web when they're uh, online. Well, I would suggest that only cyber experts go near the dark web on your behalf because the people that are involved uh, in the dark side of the internet uh, are very dangerous people. And these are not just individuals anymore. These are state sponsored. So these are, these are other governments with billions of dollars and they figure out ways to get you to click on links and, and figure out how to turn that into dollars so that they can have it be a good return on their investment. And, and certainly in their interest, there are things like, you know, being able to shut down financial systems, electrical systems, all that kind of stuff. But outside of that, uh, the ability to generate money. So the ability, you know, in one case, we had a client who was using a shredding company and that shredding company had a rogue employee that was selling the scanned service documents to the dark web. And they- What do you mean the, the scanned service documents? Imagine that you have a whole bunch of service uh, documents inside of your folders, your client files. You know, I, I was a financial advisor back in the day where we kept a, a client file next to our desk. And every time there was a service request, we had to fill out a form and send it to the institution for a withdrawal, a transfer, whatever it was. Okay. And imagine that you now are following the cyber regulations or the data privacy regulations that says, you know, you should go through your client files from time to time and throw those, those documents, those service requests. You got to put it into a bin, a shredding bin. I see this in a lot of firms. They, right. they have a, a shredding bin, sure. a shredding bin. And, and with that shredding bin, uh, they hire a third party shredding company. And in a lot of cases, they don't actually go out with or watch the documents get shredded they'll actually have trust in that shredding company and the shredding company will take the document, the, the, the box, they take it uh, and they bring it into their, their truck. And some of them will shred on site, which I recommend and others will shred at the quote, you know, home office. Well, in this particular case, this was a franchise version of that. And they, they literally took the documents and sold them on the dark web. Now, uh, they, I see before, yeah. before they were shredded. Right. So they, they actually weren't shredded. What the, the, the company actually did was they created duplicate bins. So imagine how, you know, crafty they were. They actually created a bin that looked like the bin you just took out. So you now got have two bins that look exactly alike. So you bring the second bin and that's what they did to this client of ours. They brought the second bin, um, you know, as if it were just shredded and they, they brought that inside and, and put that in as the empty bin but the actual bin was sitting in the truck and it was not shredded. Hmm. That's a whole different, that's not even cybersecurity. That's just physical uh, checking on your documentation. Cybersecurity principles extend well beyond just the electronic form. And what, what always is the case is the assumption it's going to be a cyber attack. And that's, that's exactly what the broker dealer in this case assumed. Now you'd say, well, how do you have all this data? Why do you know that, that how this took place? Like, how would you do that? Well, they had stolen some money. And as a result, we had the 
uh, privilege of working with the FBI. So we got to watch as the authorities came into this advisor office and they were coming in with one of two things to do that day. They were gonna shut down the office, period, or they were gonna help the client and, and get to the bottom of what happened. That's how we found out all the details about the shredding company and the, the, the fact that this was in a, a franchise business that took those documents, sold them on the dark web, got paid a lot of money for those documents. And now imagine as a firm, all of your clients are starting to get withdrawal requests. Right. And you're getting inundated with calls uh, from your clients that are, are asking what's going on and how could, you know, how could this be taking place? Situation you don't want to be involved in. Well, in this case, it worked out exceptionally well. Um, the Why, authorities, how? what's that? Well, how, how is that possible? Well, um, you know, this is a firm that had been a client for us uh, for many years and, and always asked, why am I paying this cyber firm to watch, us, watch over us? So leadership really didn't understand why they were spending money on, on a cyber firm. So uh, the reason it worked out well is because they had a cyber team. So the first thing that, came, that happened is the FBI shows up on site. And what, what do you think they asked for? Uh, documentation. Right. They said, do you have a cyber program? So our client proudly breaks out their document and hands them a document, which is their information security policy mm -hmm. and their incident response plan. And the incident response plan was clear because we had called them in. Uh, so the client had called the FBI in, not knowing that if they didn't have that document, again, they would be a second victim. Yeah. Fortunately, they had it. The FBI was ready to shut them down and told them so. The second thing they asked for was, okay, this is great. You have a, a, a program, the proof of technical controls. We hand that to them. It shows the machines are all encrypted. All the machines had, had virus protection. They were all patched. It showed all the things that the FBI wanted to know. And then, uh, then the next thing was the FBI turned around and, and, and the client, very smart, they went back to the FBI and said, did we miss anything? Is there anything we should be doing that we're not thinking of? We've educated our team. We've done all these things. Uh, we've got a risk assessment. We've got our, our policies and procedures. Uh, we've got our technical controls. Anything else we could be doing? And the FBI guy says, uh, no. Hmm. Doing everything you can do. And Good. then they said, okay, we're going to help you. Hmm. That was nice. Well, they, they ended up, you know, finding out about the, the shredding company. In the meantime, we, we notified the broker dealer who treated it as a cyber incident and sent notifications to the, I mean, th that process was really scary. Hmm. Uh, and I understand that, you know, not all broker dealers know how to handle a cyber incident, so they get panicked. Um, but um, you got to remain calm and you got to get all the facts and you got to follow a process and, and it's certainly, you know, they have a thing called an incident response, um, uh, you know, an IRP, incident mm -hmm. response program. And in your incident response plan, uh, you know, it's really where you're testing this stuff out, which is the time to do it. And in that case, I can tell you with absolute certainty, the broker dealer was not prepared. Uh -huh. So now we've, we've covered a lot of ground in this, in this uh, call. One thing I want to ask you, what, what are some emerging threats? What, what do you see in the future? I mean, you're the, you're the cybersecurity expert. What, what can be coming down the pike uh, in terms of emerging cybersecurity threats? Well, you know, one thing is uh, the 
physical equipment threat. So that, that's what I'm saying about things that are plugged into a network that you don't know enough about. So that is one of the biggest threats because it, it's overwhelmingly easy and not detectable uh, in a lot of cases that, that something is looming in your network that, that you don't know. So a big threat is to know everything that's plugged into your network and know if it's plugged in behind your firewall, then your firewall isn't going to do a great job at, at identifying. That's one of the big threats out there. What about artificial intelligence? We've seen artificial intelligence being used for good, monitoring data, looking for you know that your credit card company watches your transactions and compares them to known fraud patterns. But could hackers be using artificial intelligence to do a better job uh, defeating these? They are. They actually are. Um, they're using a tremendous amount of artificial intelligence. Uh, and so is the good side. So you think of cybersecurity, there's a good side and a bad side. And I will tell you that the good side is, is defeating the bad side, but the bad side always comes up with new and interesting things like using artificial intelligence. So imagine that you're sent an email and the email turns out is one of these scam emails, but they're not really looking at whether or not uh, you care about this, this scam and fall for the scam. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking to see that you have an active email address. And now they can start to, to think through and, and look at things uh, and, and be very careful of anything that gets installed on a computer. So again, the importance of virus protection, you open up uh, an email, a PDF, uh, a, a Word document. These systems are, are, are filled with something called a payload which is where the ability to leverage something like artificial intelligence becomes so handy. So imagine your, your device, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but you could be talking about a song in front of Alexa, and the next thing you know, you go to your computer, and it's like up on your computer. It's like, how are they, they connecting these things? That's all part of that artificial intelligence. They're trying to help you and, and be convenient, but imagine that can be used against you as well. I can imagine many ways that can be used against you. But yeah. Brian, this has been really helpful. I feel like we've just scratched the surface on all these different security issues. I'd probably like to have you back at some, at some point because there's, there's, I have a whole bunch of things on my list that we didn't even get, we didn't even get to. I, uh, you know, when we said, are we going to have enough to talk about, you know, it, talking about these things with you and, and, and just spending time with you has, uh, has been terrific. I, I'm, I'm available to you. Uh, at any time. I love what you do for the industry. Uh, I, as being a, another person that's passionate about the success of the financial services industry, uh, and in our case, you know, protecting it, in your case, uh, just the information that you provide is, is so incredibly valuable. So I thank you for taking the time to talk to me about cybersecurity today and look forward to further discussions. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Brian. Hey everyone, it's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week.